Welcome to Advocation Change It Up, a new podcast series hosted by Dr. Karen Liller, a professor at the USF College of Public Health and director of the Activist Lab. Hello, thank you so much for joining us for the USF College of Public Health podcast series on racism, health, and life. Our podcast from the Activist Lab is called Advocation Change It Up. I'm Dr. Karen Liller, a professor at the College of Public Health and director of the Activist Lab, and I'm joined by one of our student advisory board members, Caitlin Carr. So how are you, Caitlin? I'm doing great, Dr. Liller. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. Well, the Activist Lab at the college prepares our students to be exemplary advocates and leaders in public health. And if you just Google us at USF College of Public Health Activist Lab, you'll see all the educational programs we have, our boot camps, our seminars, our research on a variety of topics, and our advocacy, and work to assure students have practice experience in the community at the state and national levels. This podcast involves talking with public health leaders and advocates this work has led to great improvements in public health. We'll be talking in each podcast with a guest on a public health issue, and we will end each podcast by asking how we as the community can advocate for change. And also, I have to add, the views expressed reflect those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of the University of South Florida. Well, I can't think of a more important issue now than that of racism and its effect on our health, and for that matter, our lives. This series features leaders in academia and our community about these topics, and my guest today is Dr. Antoinette Jackson, professor and new chair of anthropology here at USF, who specializes in issues of identity and representation at public sites of history and heritage, with emphasis on American, African American, and African diaspora culture, and a geographic focus that is the United States and the Caribbean. She actively engages critical race theory as a way of seeing and knowing and is interested in the social construction of race ethnicity, employing intersectionality as a framework for intervention. Dr. Jackson completed a four-year federal appointment as the regional cultural anthropologist for the U.S. National Park Service Southeast Region in May 2016. She is editor-in-chief of the journal Present Past, and her work on heritage has been published widely. She was recently awarded a USF Understanding and Addressing Blackness and Anti-Black Racism in Local, National, and International Communities Research Grant for her project entitled African American Burial Grounds and Remembering Project, Living Communities Challenging Silenced Histories in Florida. Her book, Speaking for the Enslaved, Heritage Interpretation of Antebellum Plantation Sites, was published by Routledge in 2012, and her newest book is called Heritage, Tourism, and Race, The Other Side of Leisure, and that was recently published by Routledge in April of 2020. And she also leads the Heritage Research Lab, which I hope we can talk about today on the podcast. So hello, Dr. Jackson. Hello, Dr. Lillard. How are you? I'm fine. Hey, what a great bio you have. And by the way, congratulations on becoming department chair. Oh, you're welcome. And uh, that bio tired me out. So thank you. <laughs> I know, <laughs> me too. <laughs> I'm very proud of myself that I got through the bio. <laughs> yes. So I am glad to be here and glad to be amongst all of you and get to share my work. Thank you. Well, first, for the listeners, let's define structural racism and then go from there. 
From the article from Gian Ford for the Dubois Review, structural racism is defined as the macro-level systems, social forces, institutions, ideologies, and processes that interact with one another to generate and reinforce inequities among racial and ethnic groups. Now, structural mechanisms do not require the actions of individuals. In fact, even if interpersonal discrimination were completely eliminated, racial inequities would remain unchanged due to the persistence of structural racism. And some examples are segregation, different employment opportunities, legal issues, educational opportunities, healthcare options, immigration, and more. So you and I have discussed, Dr. Jackson, the role of the social construction of race and related topics. Could you expand on this for the listeners? And could you also discuss with us your work in this area and some general concepts from your book and the Heritage Lab? I know that's a lot to, yes, <laughs> it is. to talk about in, <laughs> in a paragraph, but, um, but it would be great if you could do that. Yeah, thank you. Um, I think, I, I mean, I'm glad to be on again, and I think I know when people listen to my bio, they always think public health, heritage, how is that all interrelated? Yeah. But I think there is definitely an intersection, and I'm glad we're having this conversation. Because okay. the a social construction of race and ethnicity and gender and anything along those lines is everything we, up, we do to uphold the system that you described. And I want to expand on that definition. What is this system we're talking about? And I think the underlying key of the system, and we have to be very, very conscious of keeping this in the forefront of our mind, is that this is a common system of oppression, white supremacy. I think in the definition right. you la- you laid out, uh, we just need to make sure we underscore that it's a system of, of hierarchy and inequity, primarily characterized by white supremacy, with mm-hmm. uh, differential treatment and privilege and power for white people at the expense of other people like black, Latino, Asian, Native right. Americans, and others. So we have to keep thinking about that elephant in the room. It's mm-hmm. patriarchy. It's all intertwined with patriarchy, dominion, and those kinds of things. What is happening that people are doing to uphold standards of beauty, um, educational systems, leadership practices? Who do we look to for as leaders? Uh, the neighborhoods we live in, what is considered a good neighborhood, all of those right. things that define our everyday living and our standards that we use to make something superior or um, inferior are mm-hmm. those things that we all do in practice, sometimes without even thinking about it, to right. hold this system in which we place white at the top and pretty much black at the bottom. So that's the yeah. thing we have to keep in mind when we're thinking about this. In mm-hmm. my work, I look at uh, ways in which this common system of oppression uh, impacts families, communities, uh, particularly families and people of African descent and people from the, within the African diaspora, wherever Africans were dispersed uh, after the transatlantic slave trade. And so I'm looking at these systems and particularly with, with to do with how we talk about segregation. How has the actual legal exclusion of black folks and others who are non-white from educational places, particular neighborhoods, particular mm-hmm. parks and recreational facilities. How has that impacted what we know and um, what those folks know about uh, how to navigate in the world? So mm-hmm. we have to think about that. What stories, um, what histories do we hear in school and, and our um, community, communities? Um, 
Uh, what about these marginalized narratives? What is left out? Why don't we hear about the histories of the leadership, the, the uh, ways in which uh, people in different communities were, were doing things that were not part of the public eye because they were not considered significant? So mm-hmm. how do we bring, bring those stories and those histories back into what we talk about? Um, that's what I do in my book, both books that you mentioned. And uh, mm-hmm. in, in, in the Heritage Lab, one of the things we do is go out in the community uh, and, and work with communities to document those histories and stories and uh, things that have been not that have been left out. And we work with communities and use the power of these places like the university with the resources that they have and we have available to us to help those communities or work with those communities to systematically document those histories and make those part of the public story, part of the public narrative. So I do that on really local levels within the lab, like Sulphur Springs, on this recent project with the Zion uh, Burial Grounds. How do we mm-hmm. get those stories, make those uh, histories part of our everyday dialogue? Uh, right. And then on the national level, I look at the National Park Service. What stories on a national level become the American story? What stories are part of the, what we know of as our national narrative and what stories are left out and why. And so well, I've been working with the Park Service, oh, about 15 years now more, mm-hmm. working with all the various parks and including stories about women, different religious groups, uh, Native American communities, African American communities that have been left out of the dialogue, the stories, the history, the rich, rich history uh, of those parks. How do you put those back in or put them in, period? not even back in, they were never included in the first place. And right. so how do you do that? And that's the kind of work uh, that I do on a very, very, very specific level. Yeah, you know, I was listening to another one of your podcasts about the park, mm-hmm. and I found it so amazing because you were saying in some of our national parks, right, back mm-hmm. in the day, there were even different roads where African-Americans, <laughs> yeah, I was, I was, I didn't know that. I was totally amazed at that, that they, that they traveled, that white individuals didn't. Yeah. Right? Uh, so it was yeah, so yeah. separated. And you know, who thinks of that when they go to a park? Right. I mean, nobody, <laughs> right? No one thinks of that these days. But that was so amazing to me. You know, your work with heritage and in the parks and leisure, right? Where, where yes. we go for areas of leisure how it was very different, right, back in the yes. days for, for different groups. Not everybody could do that. And I think that goes back to your whole thing of white supremacy, right, and yes. and why certain groups are afforded these privileges and others are not. Right. And, uh, yeah, yeah it never really seems to amaze, amaze me, as you said, the stories when I go out and talk to different communities and collect these yeah. histories, what is, what, what they have to say. It's like the roads and the, I know uh, the, the right? story of Mammoth Cave, where uh, yes, Black uh-huh. Cave guide the guide leaders were part of the early history of the that park, the Mammoth Cave, and yeah. then when the National Park came, they you know erased, uh, you know they fired all the Black Cave guides. Exactly. So it's so interesting that you know the, you know the level of segregation was so entrenched and so um, you know so much part of the system that we we don't even know these things like it, it happened and then now we say. Uh, that's one of my things I said, one of the things we can all do is think about the questions we ask when we think right. about um, segregation or think about these systems of oppression. What mm-hmm. is the question we ask? Because at the Park Service, they were saying, 
Why? And we all are part of this big question. Why aren't there black people doing this or that? Why aren't there women doing, uh, you know, why are there no black people visiting this park? Why are there no women at this place? But mm-hmm. that's not the question. <laughs> that mm-hmm. is not the question because it, begs, it assumes that that place that you're talking about, everything was open and welcoming and, and yes. everything was copacetic. Which right. You have to then flip and think about that question in another way. You know, what were you doing? What was going on at that part that these folks weren't there? Um, you right. have to take a look at the history and put it in context and not put the illness on why aren't these people visiting uh, as if that, that, that they're the problem. <laughs> as if they're the problem. And, and it continues today, right? So, yeah. you know, and, and Caitlin, um, I'm going to ask uh, have her jump in here for a minute for some questions that I know she has. And by the way, for our listeners, Caitlin is getting her PhD in anthropology. So she's really interested in this topic. Um, but we were talking about the Green Book right? yeah. <laughs> that you had mentioned on another one. Yes, you all, I have to tell the listeners, please uh, listen to Dr. Jackson's podcast. I want you to listen to ours, of course, but there are many others uh, that she has out there that are so interesting. An hour will go by and you'll be amazed that, you know, an hour went by and you're listening. You're still listening because it is amazing. But yeah, the Green Book, right, which mm-hmm. which was uh, places that African-Americans would look through to, to see where they could stay, right, if mm-hmm. they were traveling or places mm-hmm. where they could go. Yeah. It's hard for people to imagine that, but, you know, it, it's true. Right. There's a travel guide put together by an African-American a postal worker in New York. Yeah. And he created this series because during segregation, there were so many places where African-Americans were not welcome that he yeah. wanted to create a, a guidebook so that when you're traveling, uh, that you know where places that were welcoming. And that was one of the things I found interesting about that. It was it was decided by people who visited those places. Uh, <laughs> and, and, you know, they, they wrote in and said, this is a good place to stay. And then maybe folks from the Green Book went out and checked it out. And then that that's how it became part of the book. And it was oh, a series pre- uh, published from like the early 1930s all yeah. the way up through the 60s, 1966. So, Is that right? you know, so it mm-hmm. was a critique to me. I told the Park Service in the, that it was a critique of places that weren't in the Green Book. Because that meant if you right. are not deemed welcoming to these folks who were traveling, going, looking for places to eat, rest, get gas, right. you know, uh, go to the hairdresser and all these kinds of things. Like these were places that were being welcoming and, and appropriate and not uh, demeaning to the people who were their clientele. So it was an interesting commentary. It really is. So, Caitlin, do you have questions for Dr. Jackson? Yes. Yeah, so thank you again, Dr. Jackson, for joining us today. Hi, Caitlin. Hi. <laughs> um, and I'm so happy because I think, well, obviously I'm studying both anthropology and public health, and there are a lot of, you know, um, parallel themes in both disciplines, Mm -hmm. and I'm really happy that we have the opportunity this morning to talk about how these two Mm -hmm. disciplines are more similar than people may think. Exactly. Um, And I really liked what you were saying with regard to blaming the individual, because we talk about this in anthropology all the time, but we we have this tendency, well, we definitely see it nowadays in in the United States, (laughs) where um, it's this pull yourself up by the bootstraps mentality, and we don't think about the larger picture or the larger structural forces that are in in place and have been in place um, and continue to manifest and, you know, cause things such as health disparity or racism to continue. And I think um, that's one reason why we have such a polarized um, political system, because, you know, we tend to swing back 
and forth instead of kind of meeting in the middle um, with regard to addressing these structural issues. So I just wanted to make that general statement. Um, but yeah. I, I will, mm -hmm. yeah, so I will switch gears a little bit, but I, I wanted to just ask you a personal question um, with regard to how you got interested in anthropology and um, if this is something that you've always studied or I know a lot of us tend to kind of fall into the discipline from other, um, we have all different kinds of stories about how we learned about anthropology, but would you mind sharing with us briefly just how you, how you became interested in the work that you're doing? Yeah, that, that is a, always an interesting story because if someone had told me, you know, when I first started that this was, would be where I was, I would have laughed in their face. I started out as, uh, I, I always liked to write, so I was always considered a, a, a writer, but my parents said, do something that would, you know, be able to support yourself. <laughs> and so I got into computer science. So I started out as a computer scientist, systems engineer for Bell Labs and AT&T. Uh, mm -hmm. and, uh, and did that kind of work um, and always wrote on the side and things like that. And so eventually I got into the business side of AT&T and Lucent Technology. Um, and while I was doing that work for the telecommunications industry, I took a trip along the sea islands and uh, I started, I got, I became fascinated by the Gullah Geechee culture, the descendants of enslaved Africans who worked on the rice plantations. And I was like, why well, hadn't I ever heard about this, these people, the community, the ways in which the culture was able to, you know, to survive and sustain itself even through, um, through the period of enslavement to freedom and, uh, and maintain many of their rich cultural practices, language and art forms and, 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 and religion and things like that. So I was like fascinated. So I used to go back and forth and just write about it on the side. Mm -hmm. And then uh, <laughs> one day they tried to recruit me to get a, a PhD in business. And I was like, yeah. uh, when I realized what a PhD was, because I had an MBA, but I thought a PhD, that's a lot of work. That's a lot of time. Mm -hmm. You have to do something that you're really passionate about. Yeah. And I started thinking about what that was. And it was that work I was doing on the side with the Gullah Geechee and, the, you know, visiting mm -hmm. back and forth and writing these little stories about, you know, the rice agriculture. And everybody was like, I never knew that. And so I was always <laughs> very excited. And so when I went back for a PhD, I decided to go into, I looked at, I researched and realized that anthropology was a place that I can do to combine all the things, my business and my, my computer science and my interest in culture and writing, mm -hmm. and that somebody would pay me to research and write and travel. <laughs> all the things I like to do. I was yeah. like, wow. So I, I, I went after the PhD at University of Florida and then the rest, you know, is a long slug, but uh, the rest is history, mm -hmm. you know. That's how yeah. I, I came upon it. I had no idea what anthropology was in the beginning of this uh, journey. And it was just that I was interested in a topic and I looked and see to see what discipline would support that interest. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. It's interesting how so many of us have kind of serendipitously fallen into the discipline. Yes. But, yeah. um, both, both anthropology, I think, and public health. Yeah, you know, exactly. Yeah. 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 Yes, exactly. So, mm -hmm. and that's why I like the students that are doing this dual degree because it it's encompasses encompasses those two kinds of interests that people have. Yeah, right. really practical, the practical and applied, and then the interest in the you know the critical thinking around mm -hmm. all of those things. So, I really mm -hmm. I really enjoy this that program. I'm glad we have it within yes. our program. Um, yeah. So.
Yeah, I, I've definitely enjoyed being a student in both disciplines. Um, mm-hmm. So thank you. Yeah, and I do have one additional question for you. Um, so because we may have some listeners who are not familiar with an anthropological take on race, um, would you mind maybe sharing a little bit about the theories that you employ in your research? And then if you want to talk a little bit about the methodology. Um, but, well, I guess I'm giving you a kind of a loaded question here. But and <laughs> also, also, we don't, we're giving very long poor, questions to poor, Dr. Jackson. This is wow. actually a test, Dr. Jackson. This is a test. No, I'm just kidding. Um, That's what I'm, I feel like it. So if you want to talk a little bit about the methodology, the theory, but also how, as anthropologists, we maybe think of race differently from other disciplines, like, for example, with critical race theory and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, I think the first and foremost, yes, yeah, I'll, I'll go for it, Caitlin. <laughs> I can help guide you along. That's what I was going to say. <laughs> and you'll, you'll throw with the training that we've had in our program. This is where you'll sign for the program. This is where it comes. I can help right. you. Yes. This is actually my defense. Like, okay. <laughs> exactly. I don't feel alone in this. Okay. I'll get it stuck. <laughs> but, <laughs> I'm just practicing I, my anthropological skills right now. That's okay. You, That's right. You are. And, and I'll just turn mine around and just say, hey, what do you think, <laughs> And because anthropology, of course, we, we look at the broad, it's holistic, right? And we, we look at right. the entire spectrum. But I think that one of the first things to think about is anthropology as a discipline and as a, uh, we do not think race is real in terms of a biological concept. And I think this really gets at the mm-hmm. core of what sometimes it's confusing to people and also informative. There is no biological thing called race. And that's the first thing we have to hammer in Mm -hmm. as anthropologists when we have, uh, especially when I teach uh, intro courses and things like that, intro cultural, one of the first things we show that there is no such thing biologically as race, but there is something socially constructed, meaning people came up with, you know, parameters or tried to quantify people according to this thing, this nebulous thing called race. And you can see how arbitrary it is because what are the what are the markers? What are the where do you actually draw a line that puts you in one race or one category versus another? There is no line, mm-hmm. <laughs> and so um, so that's you know that's one of the areas that we get at. But socially, people have done it. They they've used these arbitrary markers: skin color, uh, um, eye shape, hair, things like that to try to put people in a box, right. and then. Uh, put those, uh, create concepts and, and ideas and stereotypes that go along with a particular group that look like this. All of these people have these certain characteristics. And, and again, skin color as whiteness being that, that color that is the thing that is the top of the hierarchy, basically. And then constructing laws and practices all around uh, this, this notion, this physical characteristic that is arbitrary, but they still have constructed entire laws yep. around. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, and I look like a certain thing. Yes, go ahead. And I'll help you out. I'll use my anthropological education. <laughs> I'm just okay, kidding. Okay, cool. Showcase. Show 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 Let's see how she does. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, as you mentioned, like there is no biological basis to race, and it is, you know, but we these social constructions do become biologically real. So I think that can be a little mm. bit confusing for undergrads because the way that racism is internalized can actually have biological effects. And I think that's important mm-hmm. to note I in think, this yeah. podcast because mm-hmm. we're, you know, we're kind of meshing race and health. 
Um, mm-hmm. but, and we see yes. that with hypertension, for mm-hmm. example, mm-hmm. among African-American yes. females, mm-hmm. premature births. Um, so mm-hmm. we can't say that race, while it, we know that it doesn't really exist, it's socially constructed entirely, it does have mm-hmm. biological effects on sure. people's bodies that end up manifesting mm-hmm. in very real and, ways. And yeah. a lot of that is a trauma, right, that, that mm-hmm. people suffer. And it, yeah. um, it, and it just it actually uh, now they're they're studying so much with that right about actually turning on certain genes and turning off certain genes you know the whole the whole issue of how it does become it can become biological but I you know yeah. but it is not by you know it when we when we think of race you know that's a social construction yeah. basically yeah. yeah the yeah. categories aren't biological but the effects that right. the social the construction yeah. the has mentally Definitely. can cause anxiety and stress that may have biological manifestations if that makes sense mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So. and causing this is the structural racism you know that we're talking about yeah right yeah. that's been going on um which after caitlin finishes i'll go into my next question about this whole process of racism and it's yeah and I, mm-hmm. I guess this is just kind of a side rant but it's it's I find it unfortunate that we don't talk about this until you get to graduate school you know right. and I think it's important <laughs> that, for people to have a firm grasp on what race means both biologically socially um, ideologically it's it's important to have a firm grasp on that earlier because I feel like that really could help us address the structural issues that we see in today's world and I, I think just before you get in, Dr. Miller, I wanted to say the yeah. critical race discourse, uh, Caitlin, that is what frames my work. And I think it should frame everybody's work. It should inform everybody's work because yeah. unless you ask the question, unless you center this discussion about race and its impl- impact and implications, mm-hmm. you're missing, you're missing a, a lot of information about particular peoples and populations mm-hmm. because of the social construction and the ramifications, as you're saying, yep. in public health, for example, yeah. uh, of people. So you definitely, when I say a critical race frame or discourse, yeah. it is a way to filter everything through this conversation, through this lens of what is going on historically, what is going on presently mm-hmm. with this, this population of people and, and the larger society. So we all need to ask that question yeah. in our work all the time. And that's what a critical race lens does. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we don't want to make yeah, assumptions you know. about people's, right. you know, social status mm-hmm. or their social, ca- you know, we don't want to categorize them socially as we do biologically or take that at face value. So that's where heritage studies and critical race theory really come in handy and are critically important because it gives us an opportunity to reveal those histories that otherwise would just be lost in the ether. Yeah, and they help explain mm-hmm. a lot of a lot of questions, like I said, that, yeah. that are we don't think about. And then if you start thinking about it from historically and uh, the histories of institutions and organizations and communities with respect right. to race, you it reveals uh, many, many, many things. And as yeah. you all just highlighted, some of those, yes, yeah. yeah. You know, uh, Dr. Jackson, even now, um, journals, right, and mm-hmm. journal publishers are asking now when we report something in public health, we, mm-hmm. we, we love to use race as a variable, right? right. Race mm-hmm. and geographic and socioeconomic status and all those kinds of things. We often try to see if they're predictors of whatever we're studying. Mm-hmm. In my case, I study injuries and trauma. So, you know, are these predicted? And we've long said, right, um, Mm -hmm. uh, this in the Caucasian community, this in the African-American. But now what they're saying is it's not enough Mm -hmm. to say that anymore. (laughs) To just say, well, you know, 
African-Americans have a higher homicide. Whites have a higher suicide rate. Well, Mm -hmm. okay. But, and then we leave it. We just Mm -hmm. leave it at that. And then we go on and we talk about why, and we give more data and more statistics. And then we say some interventions and we say Mm -hmm. some nice things. And basically though you're missing, why is that? That's not really, that's (laughs) that's a construction, right? Yeah. Is that a true variable even, you know, that we're, that we're throwing around and, and probably not, you know, we probably need to be, you know, so then we have to say, well, why is this in this particular community? You know, why is this? And then you can get into the history and the heritage that you're talking about. Yeah. Exactly. And that's what some of the, yeah, some of the medical journals now Mm -hmm. and some of the public health journals are, are, they're not allowing things to be published. And I think that's great. And Mm -hmm. I think it's great even for all of our research because all of us have been guilty of that. Mm -hmm. I mean, I know in public, I mean, we have been, I mean, we've been guilty of just saying, you know, giving values for race and then just moving forward, you know, and Mm -hmm. without, Without even ourselves, I think, to be honest with you, really thinking about it, you know, really thinking why we know this occurred and it's not just poverty, you know, so you got to go deeper than that. So exactly. You have to put that historical historical frame on it and bring it forward, bring it forward. And I think that's, sorry, I was just going to say that also shows how how important interdisciplinary work is because Mm -hmm. um, you could, you know, hire a contractor work in conjunction with (laughs) someone from another field that could definitely help with, with processes. Yeah. And I I think also we get caught up in this deficit model, Black people aren't this, but but we don't flip it around. Like in my thing with the park, it's like, well, Black people aren't doing leisure because we didn't see them as a park. Well, A, they were excluded from the park, so you didn't see them. But B, they were leisure, but the definition of leisure may have been constructed based on what certain population considered leisure, what you defined as leisure. For one particular population, it may yeah. have excluded the wide range of things that other people are doing with respect to leisure. So you have to open up your frame. What mm-hmm. is leisure in the group? What is health? What, right. is, what are health practices that are being done at that level of the folks you're talking about so that you can reach them where they are? Like your definition may not encompass all of the right. things that all people of are them. doing, all the networks exactly. that they are having in place as a community because they had to work around or within, mm-hmm. but they are doing the things that you're saying. It's just maybe doing it differently. Yeah. Doing it a little differently. Yeah, no, it's, it's fascinating. You know, the United States, Dr. Jackson has really um, perpetuated structural racism. Mm-hmm. If we're going to be honest, <laughs> yes. right? Yes. I mean, we, we can, I think we can all simply say this, but you know, and I, I ask every guest on this podcast series, um, for me, it's, I understand, you know, I always ask the how and why have we perpetuated this? And I understand the how, you know, we've already gone over that about segregation, employment opportunities, educational opportunities. But I always struggle. Um, it's 2020, right? Um, why? Why this continues, right? Why has this been so long? I mean, we've known about it. It's not like we woke up yesterday and said, hey, there's something called structural racism and we better do something about it. I mean, we've known this. I mean, people have known this. They may not have called it that. They may have thought about it in different ways. But I just wonder what your thoughts are. Why it's lasted so long? Yeah, and I think it lasted so long because people, I think Caitlin hit on it a little earlier (laughs) that it's not until really uh, the college level that many people get this full range of the history Mm -hmm. of the U.S. and our structures and, and how that 
the impact and implications for different communities. If, if I grew up, uh, I lived in Washington, D.C., and at one point I was going to an all-black school, and then when I went to high school, it was all-white school. And those people, those schools did not, the, the, the information that I got in terms of black history or the history, the real right. history of the U.S. was totally different. And it was, mm. and then when I start to teach my classes at USF, I'm always amazed about uh, the way that which the, I have to bring the students along to really, you know, understand. They're really upset because they think, well, you know, I thought everything was fine, and they don't know the, the you know, the critical the story. Yeah. <laughs> and so I think we, I think we, I don't think we do know. I, I seriously, I think that there is a level of education that really needs mm-hmm. to happen. Um, I agree. In a, in a real critical way, and that means making people uncomfortable mm-hmm. uh, yes. with the, the real history. And I think that is where we need to start as well. We have to really hammer down and, and get this really uh, critical look at the U.S. We get a, yeah. a real pretty rosy picture of our national story, uh, <laughs> but we don't really examine it <laughs> and, and break it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, even leading black historians do not get much Right. Information. Right. There's not much information in yes. the historical books and what children learn. Right. right. So they learn I think very mm-hmm. little about information. Mm-hmm. And um, I had a colleague tell me that their child was in school or when they were in school and um, they learned, you know, all about the wars and the history and when the United States started. And then they learned yeah. about Harriet Tubman. There was right. like two <laughs> minutes on Harriet Tubman. And they said what they what they learned about Harriet Tubman. She was a really nice lady. That, that's it. Yeah. I mean, that's yeah. all everybody yeah. else is getting this, this, and this. Yes. And yes. that's all the time they spent. Yeah. And I thought, mm-hmm. how sad is that? Mm-hmm. You know, that, that you're not getting the true picture, mm-hmm. right? If you spend yeah. two minutes on Harriet Tubman <laughs> and, you know, all this other, all the other forefathers and everything yes, that we've learned about, right? right? <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah. So, so I think you're right. I think the historical aspect is so important, yeah. so important to learn. We always also ask Dr. Jackson is, you know, what can we do about this? I mean, you know, here I have an activist lab and we're addressing this in the college. Um, I think you and I discussed that the College of Public Health now no longer requires the GRE for uh, several graduate programs. Mm -hmm. Um, We found out that the GRE is, um, well... I'll just say it. You know, I've done studies with yes, myself. Yes, it's not yes, a great yes. predictor of much of anything. I mean, for yes, graduate success, yes. for graduate mm-hmm, success, right? Mm-hmm. And we found it did discriminate. Mm-hmm. It does discriminate. And um, not only against um, folks that are non-white, but also it discriminates against women in many mm-hmm, cases. Mm-hmm. And so so we've decided, as have many schools of public health now, to, to not use that, to not use mm-hmm. that as a measure of mm-hmm. someone, you know, getting into a program. So I think that's a little way, hot, little uh, an example of a little way that things can change. But do you have any other suggestions for us as how we as advocates, what we can do, and how we can change as a community? And, and I'm not talking about little things like talking more about it in school or maybe we'll address it. How do we make real change, do you think, in this area? Because, gosh, we need to. Yeah, and I think I think you all do a really good job, but I think to really make this um, um, uh, give primacy to it, uh, meet people where they are. You really right. If there is no one size fits all, okay. you know, and you have mm-hmm. to go out in these communities and really, and as that's why the anthropology is important to yeah. really spend time with folk and understand what it is, where they're coming from, and mm-hmm. how you tailor this program, tailor this information 
understand health conditions from the ground. There, you know, people want, there's not one black person. There's not just one, mm-hmm. one model. So you really right. have to look at intersectionality uh, as a key component. Yeah. What, is, what are social economic conditions? What are, what are the genders? What are the sexualities, a sexual orientation? What is the nationality? Right. Uh, black mm-hmm. people from different, you know, uh, countries and places. Sure. You have a whole different, you know, infrastructure around them than the folks from another um, a place. So you need to yeah. really break this down and break this apart. And I think public health really has to continue to do that. Yeah. Otherwise, we continue to miss, mm-hmm. miss, miss uh, you know, whole communities in these conversations. So really, it's a lot of work, but I think that's why things like the activist lab, combining with anthropology, where you really want to go and be where people are and figure out right. what it is that's going on at that level, at the, and then inform the larger picture from the ground mm-hmm. out. Mm-hmm. And I think those are the things that really, you know, because typically things are top down a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, downstream. <laughs> by doing like that, you're making yeah. by doing that you're making assumptions, and those assumptions yes. aren't they don't represent reality. So you're wasting no. all your resources. Yeah, exactly. that's right. Yep. That's right. It's all downstream. You know, in public health, we really believe in collaboratory practices and things. But we, we, I mean, we need to also continue to do that, as you say, and we also need to to look further. I think into this we whole do. issue. We, yeah, yeah. I said you have to ask the question about if you don't see anything about race, or you need to ask all the time, what is the history of race in this institution? What mm-hmm. is my own personal history of you know towards the yeah. issue of right. race, and what am I bringing? To that, you know, yeah, to the form when I'm talking mm-hmm. Yeah, you have to really, you cannot shy away from it, uh, even though it's not, you know, a real biologically, it has, you know, as we say, social and historical implications. You really need to look at an organization's history and mm-hmm. with respect to people in different communities. What have they done historically to exclude people or not welcome right. them or not make it available to the range of people that they want on purpose, on purpose? On purpose, right. Yeah, right. So you can't just you can't just all of a sudden open the doors and say, Come in. People remember. People have interviewed sure. knowledge. They tell stories. Hey, I'm not going over there because, you know, my grandma Because I wasn't welcome. Yes. Family, you, have, you know exactly. 20, so, you, you have family saying, Listen, my family yeah. member twenty years ago went there and exactly. hated it. I'm not going exactly. there. <laughs> exactly. You know from like so people right. know these histories. You have to take that into account when you're yeah. trying to then reach out to these same communities and say, come in now. But yeah. what have you done differently? What have you done to acknowledge what was right. going on? <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and, and I think what happens, too, in research, we and, and Caitlin knows this, we talk about this in the activist, but I think what a mistake researchers make is that they go into an area, and public mm. health has done this, a lot of areas, and they, they think, oh, I'm going to save this area right. where I know what's <laughs> right. We're going to fix it up. Don't worry. We're going to make it right. And then when the research money runs out, mm-hmm. oh, see ya. I got to go. I don't have any more money here. Yeah. And the, the people, and you know, over time, they don't trust you anymore. Yep. Right. right? Exactly. It causes trust. like yeah. a, a chilling effect. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because, right. And it's mm-hmm. not sustainable. And, you know, people mm-hmm. are wasting their time. They don't see the value in it. And then no. I feel like it just right. kind of exacerbates their feelings that everyone is against them and no one cares and they're better off on yeah. their own. 
and then you when off on their own and then if and a do, like if a good program yeah. does arise i feel like sometimes i'm just generalizing here but people feel as though it's even if it's a great program they're going to compare mm-hmm. it to all the programs before all that weren't yeah. effective yeah and then mm-hmm. it just kind of perpetuates the cycle of mm-hmm. uh, having faith mm-hmm. in it yep and that is mm-hmm. the case Caitlin, all the time when I go into areas where, you, you know, people have been over-researched or whatever, and they are very leery. And, mm-hmm. and the reason I started the lab is because of that kind of thing. If you think about archaeology, they go in sometimes and they spend, or the science, science labs, they spend years and years and years and years doing something. And that's right. what I wanted to do with the Heritage Lab, is like I would have a community, and then each class, each, the students would rotate through, but the, through, but the focus would remain on the questions and issues of what's going on with the, and so it would be the illness would be on me to keep the continuity of the focus, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. I wouldn't close it down because, you know, that group of students are gone. Like, right. you know, to keep the focus and keep that rapport. And I, I would instill, I instill in students that, you know, you're part of a long train of students that have gone through this community and you have to, you know, right. you know, we we built a rapport, so it's important how you you know comport yourself and and what you're That's doing right. because mm-hmm. we want to keep we want to be welcomed, we want to keep coming. It's also uh, yeah, it's so, important for it to be a reciprocal process because mm-hmm, you can exactly. ask questions right. all day, but if learning people, together, if, yeah. well, but mm-hmm. if they're not receiving any direct benefits from answering exactly. all these questions, mm-hmm. they don't have to yeah. do it, and it's unethical to continue doing mm-hmm. that. Right, so. and I and I like to leave tools in communities. I, I really yeah, go and too. help train people, mm-hmm. and then leave. Like, how do you do an interview? How do you store the data? How do you, you know, mm-hmm. present it in a way that you know and, and make it systematic? And I want to leave that because I do know eventually that is where you will have to leave. Right, <laughs> I will have to leave no matter yeah. how much I exactly. like it or want to stay. But I want them to have these like give back as Caitlin's saying give back and make sure that these Mm -hmm. communities understand you know or can come in and get the you know tap into my resources whenever they want they can call me but leave things leave things in the community and so that they can really do a lot of this work I train I I go in to train anthropologists right right there And just to have that personal (laughs) touch, because I feel like a lot of other disciplines lack that. Um, But it's Mm -hmm. important to, you know, remember people's names, too. I mean, I Mm -hmm. I haven't really talked about my (laughs) research too much, but I do my research in rural Guatemala. And like when I, quote unquote, compensate my um, participants, (laughs) I always go back a week later or a few days later to show that you know, I remember them and to talk about, talk with them a little bit more and, you know, just to mm-hmm. have more of a human touch to it instead of just this transactionary process. Because while that may be right. how we're used to doing research, that's not how everyone, like, that's not oh, always definitely. a good way to do it everywhere. So, mm-hmm. yeah. yep. Yeah. Yeah. So, Caitlin, I'm going to turn this, ask you a question. I'll turn this over to you. So, you are just a little bit younger than Dr. Jackson. <laughs> so I, I, I think uh, maybe a lot, like a, a couple, lot, low, a lot, only, <laughs> only, only, right, only two years, but you know. No. So, uh, could you tell me, Caitlin, because what is, you know, I always say, what's the word on the street? What is the pulse of the students on this issue? So, you work with uh, other students, you're in the activist lab, you're both anthropology and public health. You know, do you think students, because I believe, 
Dr. Jackson, and, and I, you can agree or disagree with me, but I believe it's these next generations mm-hmm. that are going to be a whole lot smarter than us <laughs> after all this oh, and are yeah. going to make some big changes. You know, like an injury, I always say, um, you know, when I was young, I wasn't in a car safety seat because they weren't around that much. And so <laughs> now, though, you know, my children, when they have children, they're going to put them in a car safety seat. They're not even going to ask probably, you know, is that an important thing to do? And I think it's, you know, sometimes they say it takes two generations, right, to make up, mm-hmm. to make good change. So tell us, Caitlin, about <laughs> students, about folks your age, what do they think about this whole structural racism, making change? What, what What's their pulse? I mean, I may have kind of a, bi- a biased, you know, um, <laughs> answer just because the, a lot of my friends are also anthropology grad students or public health grad students, but um, uh-huh. I think it's important. I think when I, I guess I'm kind of redirecting the question, but still answering it at the same time. Um, I think it's it's really important to expand your worldview as much as possible and to expand your friend group. Um, and I think through doing that, you have the ability to see the world in different ways. And I think that's mm-hmm. where, um, you know, change can really be made. So I don't know if that directly answers your question, but I, I feel like if people continue to do that and learn from people who are different from them that were really not all that different. Um, well, and I think your, your viewpoints are just different. You know, yeah. um, um, I think, I think, um, you know, um, when you take a look at March for our lives, you know, when you had with the, I do the firearm research, I was so impressed with those young, those young people, right. They were like 19 years old, 18 and 19, you know, yeah. David Hogg and Emma Gonzalez that we had here. And, and they were out there and they were, you know, they were that young, but a force for change. Yeah. So that's what I'm hoping. And I'm hoping that, you know, of all, all groups can be forces of change, you know, as generations go by. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. I think change is directed and then redirected and, you know, you you have fallbacks. But I, I think we are making some progress. I just hope that we continue to make progress in the next few yeah. years. Yeah, I, I just think we'll have to continue it. I hope it's not. And, you know, Dr. Jackson, what do you think about this? Um, I, I've talked to some folks on the podcast that have said we're on a downward trajectory. <laughs> you know, we were doing pretty good. I don't know what happened. We fell off a cliff and we're going down. So we need to pull it back up. Other people have said, well, I think it's moving in a positive direction. Or is this just going to move for a positive direction? And then in six months, we're going to be back no, where we you, were. You know, and yeah. I, I know I, I, I've heard all the cynical views, but I think that I think this gets at why I even wanted to be chair of the Department of Anthropology. I knew mm-hmm. it's a time of change. It's, uh, the ideas of diversity and inclusion, critical right. race, all of those things are at the forefront and at a time when I think we can make a difference. I actually feel that this is a generation uh, that is really poised to, to do something different and re- make some of these uh, changes lasting. I think we have some stark realities in our face that are driving us to do it, which is depressing, but then also it's helpful. Like when you see the ugly wound, then you know you have to clean it out and really go for it and let it heal. And I think we have open, we have an open wound. It's not good. But we at least are finally looking at it. And then we have these people, the movements and things like that, that some of which Caitlin was describing. Uh, I think like the Black Lives Movement and all kinds of really pushing, pushing hard. And I see the university responding. I see young people all over the place joining 
of yeah. all races. And that's so that, exciting that to me. So yeah. it's, it's, it's very positive. That's, that's so exciting. And, you know, we see this, the activists, uh, we also talked to, you know, students in high school. And uh, before COVID, we were going to do an adopt-a-school. And uh, we were going to, like, have a, in a high school or a middle school that we were going to sort of adopt, you know, and so that we could we could start reaching them with advocacy and what it means to be an advocate early, early, yeah. early in their life. Mm-hmm. There's nothing magical about learning this, you know, in college or in graduate school. You know, I mean, you can learn this very, very early. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so I think that's I think that's also exciting. So, Caitlin, do you have any more questions for Dr. Jackson? We've asked her quite a few. <laughs> Congratulations, you passed your dissertation. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yes, I didn't even know. I didn't even know I was going to be doing that this morning. <laughs> you now have a PhD in public health. Or I guess okay. I, always, I always ask this question at the end of interviews. This isn't really an interview, but is there anything else that you would like to describe yeah, or talk about briefly that we haven't touched on or anything that you would like our listeners to hear before we end the podcast? I, I think things like the activist lab and, and all these things are very important and that this is, is, is um, you know, the way to go. I think when you think about the term anti-racist uh, and uh, yeah. that it's an active act, it's not a conversation piece. And so if you are taking on active, act, uh, actively being involved in that, anti-racist mm-hmm. it's, a, it's, it's not a term it's an action so it's everything we are actually doing the activist lab is doing this public education right. forum to educate people and move the needle so it's not a sideline thing and so i think people really need to understand that about being an anti-racist that that is you doing something not just talking about it and i think right. we need to continually emphasize that um Mm-hmm. Uh, that we all need to, to do something to make to move the needle. It's not enough to just talk about it. We actually need to right. examine ourselves. We have to actually, actually do it. It's a contact mm-hmm. sport. <laughs> and going yeah. off of that, um, do you have any books for people who are maybe in- really interested in this topic but don't know where to start um, or who are unfamiliar with it? Uh, do you have yeah, any book I, recommendations? I wanted to, I, I think someone wrote when I they said I was going to, when they heard I was going to be on this podcast. And I think for public health, um, a mm-hmm. colleague of mine at, uh, in New York, Cooney System in New York, Dr. Donna Ayn Davis, wrote Reproductive Injustice. Mm-hmm. Anybody interested in public health, she's uh, an anthropologist but uh, del- deals in public health, needs to read that book. Of course, we know that the, the, the birth, um, the reproductive practices are still disproportionately right. impacting black women. Mm-hmm. And this book not, is just not about that, but it gives us a whole history of the medical complex and how it engages with um, particularly black women, but it looks at, you know, the larger view. So I think this yeah. book is a really good conversation about, mm, you know, some of the things excellent. that we talked about. And I think everybody yeah. in public health, regardless, to just kind of take it. It's a contemporary book is, is now. There's a lot of uh, stories and, and, and theory. Um, and then, again, the just historical book, the one I refer to a lot when I teach my, teach my critical race course, is uh, stamped from the beginning, Ibrahim mm-hmm. Kendi's book. Uh, it gives us the history of race and racism. Uh, and it really, we do need to understand that it was a system that was put in place on purpose. So right. it, it right. took a long time to put this system together. So it's going mm-hmm. to take us some effort to undo it. It's not that you right. do it. To, so we need to understand the, what we're working with. 
And then his other companion book is How to Be an Anti-Racist. So I think those two kind of books give you a, you know, the history and then gives us the practicum of how we actually can start to deconstruct some of that stuff and do it ourselves, be actively engaged. I think those three books are some of the the top ones I would recommend. There are many others. But those, those are excellent three, examples, though. Yeah, yeah those, those are, are great yeah. examples. Yeah. You know, where you're, you're saying, Dr. Jackson, we're saying in the college that um, we want to intentionally, I think is what you're saying, you have to address it. We want to intentionally look at this. We yes. don't want, we want to make intentional policy mm-hmm. changes. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And intentional curriculum changes. Mm-hmm. We don't just want to say, yeah. Oh, well, you know, race is important. That's why that yeah. bottom up approach is so important. And it, it does right. take exactly. time. It takes, that's why yes. ethnography, I mean, it's <laughs> wonderful, but it takes a lot of time. And I think yeah. that's why a lot of other disciplines haven't adopted it as a method. Yeah. But mm-hmm. I think it's important to do that and to kind of, um, you don't have to spend a whole year in the place, but to, you know, try to mm-hmm. meet yeah. in the middle mm-hmm. and do some ethnographic mm-hmm. work, but in a way that's still sustainable and still ethical for the com- communities involved. Yeah. Right. You have to talk to people. You have to send to people. Yeah. They're the <laughs> and, experts of their and, lives. Yep. And, 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 and I think, um, Dr. Miller, we're just saying being intentional. That I think that's the most yeah. thing we can do because, the system of racism was put in place. Intentional decisions were made. Intentional. Yeah, it was, it was intentional, intentional in the beginning. Yeah, and <laughs> and that's that's. Um, I wish I could. I wish I could say that I thought of that. But um, actually, Dr. Pennycook, uh, who's our executive associate dean, you know, when we're we're talking about, uh, she actually says that to us in every email that we get mm-hmm. when we're addressing exactly. it. Exactly. And many times she goes, "Okay, but remember." We want to make intentional changes. We exactly. just don't want a statement. We just mm-hmm. don't want, you know, we can have a statement that we're against structural racism, but okay, what happens yeah. then? Yeah. yeah. You know, yeah. So <laughs> it has to be so action based. Yeah. 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 It has yeah. to be, it has to be action based. Well, this yeah. has been such an interesting podcast. <laughs> Goodness, we could go on and talk probably for hours and hours, and I wish we had time to do so. But, but listen, thank you so much. Um, on behalf of the USF College of Public Health Activist Lab, our wonderful and informative guest, Dr. Antoinette Jackson, and our co-host, Caitlin Carr, we thank you for joining us today, listeners. And hey, keep listening. We have new segments coming soon for this podcast series on racism, health, and life. And as always, we would love to hear your feedback. We want to know how we're doing. So please let us know by emailing us at cophactivistlab at usf.edu. So until next time, Hey, this is Dr. Karen Willer. Remember, find your voice. Let's change it up for the better. Keep listening and join our podcast, Advocation. Change it up. We're always looking for subscribers. Tell your friends and family. We're on all media, Apple, Spotify, and more. So thank you again. And you know, when it's safe to be out and about, come see us in the Activist Lab.